Jenny had written a story about overpopulation. Right. And I'm thinking, overpopulation? That's not an issue. It's, that's like a bad issue. Not yet. <laughs> not no, in this country. No, but I'm saying it's... it's in those days, there was a lot of paranoia about overpopulation. Guys were getting vasectomies and shit. It was like really bad. And, and uh, to do an overpopulation is you just add it to the problem. Yeah. So all you have to do is fly over, you know, the Rocky Mountains to know we've still got a lot of space. family. I'm Chad Bokelman and welcome to episode number 10 of the Lantern Cast Presents Green Lantern, Green Arrow. That's right, we're on episode 10 and uh, this uh, this uh, episode we're going to be talking about Green Lantern number 81 or Green Lantern co-starring Green Arrow number 81, whatever you want to call it. Uh, the title on the, uh, uh, on the cover is actually, uh, it's guest starring Black Canary and the title on the cover is The Population Explosion. However, the name of the story in itself is called Death Be My Destiny. Now, uh, this issue is cover dated for December of 1970. And thanks to Mike's Amazing World of Comics for that information. Uh, but the actual on sale date was October 15th of 1970. That's right, October 15th. The day this episode releases. So I am covering an issue of Green Lantern and Green Arrow that came out exactly 45 years ago to the day. How about that? <laughs> its cover price is uh, 15 cents. Uh, writer uh, Denny O'Neill, artist Dick Giordano, and Neil Adams, of course, and edited by Julie Schwartz. Um, this particular uh, uh, issue, as you can uh, probably tell, features, of course, uh, uh, Green Lantern and Green Arrow during, dealing with the social issue of population, uh, overpopulation. Um, not... I'm not quite sure what the exact definition of a social issue would be, um, but I, I'm going to go ahead and call it a social issue. But anyway, straight into it. We open with the Guardians of Oa judging uh, and uh, execute, uh, executing a trial upon the old-timer, um, saying that uh, he jeopardized the health of the Earth to save a single person, uh, and that uh, his action uh, imperiled the survival of a, an entire planet. Now, what they're referring to, of course, is last issue, when uh, the old-timer had an option to save Hal Jordan, or prevent the boat from exploding with all the chemicals and stuff like that. He opted to save Hal instead of, you know... Uh, limiting the pollution in the uh, in the river and in the ecosystem. Of course, Hal, Dinah, and uh, Ollie object to this, and they each kind of throw their hat in the ring, saying that uh, uh, you know, kind of vouching for his character. None of this sways the Guardians. Uh, they said, you know, one life uh, against uh, billions is not a fair exchange. You know, uh, they say. We know your world is in grave danger, choked with poisons, overly inhabited for the food supply. In furthering that situation, our brother has sinned grievously. Therefore, it is the judgment of the, this council that our brother be stripped of his immortality. 
and sent to the world wherein the guardians of the universe originated, there to live until he dies. So they use their collective power and uh, strip the old-timer of his immortality. He becomes slightly older, more frail, more fragile. Uh, Hal uh, asks that they accompany uh, the old-timer to Maltus to say goodbye to their friend. And he also says one more thing. I suddenly find I've lost my respect for you. I'm not sure I want to keep this ring. I think maybe you should be. I think maybe you should be high and mighty without my help. I'm not resigning yet, but I'm considering it. Believe it, Guardians. They consider this and said, uh, you know, think to themselves that he's their greatest uh, lantern and that uh, his only fault is that he's too human. They head off to Maltus. They arrive on Maltus, and they see that. Uh, uh, there are people everywhere, and I'm talking asses to elbows in every available standing space in this city, and I don't mean that glibly. That is, everyone is everywhere possible. They're on the ground, they're on the ledges, they're on everything. Um, they, uh, and Hal reports that, you know, I've, I've always heard that Maltus was sparsely populated, and Old Timer says, so it was when we checked the population a mere eon ago. <laughs> So they land, and immediately they're greeted with hostility. Someone sees Dinah and says, a woman, destroy her. She, you know, judo flips him. Um, someone comes rushing at Green Arrow. He lays him out with a punch. Uh, the crowd is starting to rush him back. Hal pushes him back with his ring. So they decide to get out of the hostility and kind of fly above the crowd. They're going to go see the, uh, the archives of Maltus to see what's kind of happened to this planet. But they can't land there either because there are people there as well. Um, so the uh, old-timer says that the historical section is below ground in a vault. So Hal rips it out of the ground and drills into it and keeps it aloft as old-timer Ollie and Dinah go into the, um, the vault. It's a strain for Hal, but he does it anyways. They encounter one of the Malthusians there and he says he's going to load some vid information to tell them what happened. And just to kind of read it to you guys. <clears throat> it happened that this planet passed through a cloud of cosmic dust. The people rejoiced when they saw that the dust had no apparent effect on their health or welfare. Yet when 70 solar cycles passed, a delayed effect became manifest. For there were no children born, and the people were all aged. A great fear swept the mountains and valleys alike. In the moment of darkest despair, there came a savior who called herself Mother Juna. From the citizens, she collected specimens of flesh and drops of blood. These did Mother Juna take into her laboratory. With great scientific skill, she cultured them. And from each, she created a baby Malthusian. And these grew to a full adulthood in mere days. Now, upon reaching maturity, the new people are placed in teleporters and sent to every corner of the globe. Each arrives with a full set of pseudo-memories and pre-designed identity. It's impossible to distinguish Juna's synthetic children from the natural born. So, uh, Ollie says, you know, that's it. Maltus is suffering from overpopulation. The Maltusian also adds further that the worst part is that the folks actually recovered from the cosmic dust and there are real children now. So, basically, Mother Juna is constantly creating new people and the people who are able to have children are having people and it's just kind of an endless cycle. They figure they need to stop it. Hal says he's been monitoring, but I'm gonna. I think we should 
uh, you know, take a tour and look around a little bit, then maybe the situation isn't as bad as we think. So they go around, they look around, they see, they see people, uh, because of overpopulation, waste is being disposed of improperly. Uh, so vermin are everywhere. Um, water is a valuable commodity. People stand in uh, long lines just for a sip of water. Every, you know, every space, personal space is, is important. So just the, the simple nudge causes a big brawl. Um, women with child are reviled and their husbands are a target for murder. Um, there's not enough, not enough of anything uh, except poverty, agony, and death. So they uh, kind of come to the conclusion, the lantern is convinced, he charges his ring, and they head out to find Mother Juna. They encounter her lab, but it's actually all yellow, so they can't, obviously, uh, at this point in history, Hal's ring doesn't work on the color yellow. So, even if he could tunnel under the dome, uh, it's going to take some time, um, and don't forget the Guardians reduced his ring's power. So what Ollie does is, while Hal and the old-timer go off to, uh, you know, slowly dig this tunnel under the dome so they can get in, Ollie and uh, Dinah decide to kind of throw, put on a little show, you know, with his archery and her as the showgirl, he does all kinds of archery tricks and, you know, amazes and astonishes the crowd. Uh, in the meantime, Hal, of course, is uh, dug under the dome and uh, Ollie shoots a smoke arrow over the crowd to cover their exit. They uh, get into the dome, everything inside the dome is colored in yellow and they're confronted by a, a huge guy, uh, like the size of the Hulk, uh, but he's dressed in all yellow. Uh, so he knocks out Hal, he knocks out Ollie, he comes for Dinah, she judo flips him. That's when Mother Juna makes her appearance with two more of these guys behind her. Um, so they make a run for it. Um, they see all the equipment in the lab. We need to start blowing stuff up, says Ollie. And well, they're going to, Hal's like, hang on a second, at least until we figure out what we'll be breaking. Uh, and then the, it's too late, Mother Juna is there. So Hal drops a, a big piece of equipment on one of the guys, and uh, Ollie files, file, uh, fires an arrow at one of them, knocks him out. Mother Juna rushes Dinah. She flips her harmlessly, but she's, Mother Juna twists in midair, so she's not going to land where uh, uh, Dinah aimed her. So she crashes into the wall and some equipment. Hal's like, all right, well, I guess we're gonna. She, we should start wrecking the place, and it's. Too late because the crowd has evidently found the tunnel that Hal uh, Hal had dug and have all made their way into the lab. And of course they know what's happening, so they start destroying everything in the lab. So Hal, Ollie, Dinah, old timer, uh, take uh, Mother Juna out and kind of ask her why. Why'd you do all this? Uh, why did you use uh, Dinah specifically? Says why did you use your scientific genius for evil? She says evil. Who are you to judge? I was always taught that a woman was nothing if she wasn't a mother. I was one of the unlucky ones. I didn't recover from the cloud. I could never have babies of my own. Don't you see? I had to do what I did. I had to create life. Hal says, this is all bunk. Uh, I've made a decision. We're going to return to Oa and appeal your sentence, old-timer. And uh, the old-timer refuses and says that actually there's much he can do to help uh, uh, Maltus recover. So they uh, say their goodbyes and leave. And... Uh, uh, when they're back in Star City, Green Lantern bids his companions farewell, and Black Canary and the Archer are left. Um, so 
obviously the the journey is done and we're 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 at the end of the the hard traveling heroes section uh of of this uh of this little journey between uh ollie hal and uh old timer with you know dinah accompanying occasionally so that's that issue um now social issue of overpopulation why was it an issue if you're paying attention at the beginning of this episode i played a clip and I found a lot of audio clips actually uh, online that I'm going to be sharing with you. So while I did do the research and I watched a couple of videos and I uh, looked into some uh, some uh, articles on the subject of overpopulation concerns in the 1970s, um, I kind of am only going to hit some highlights uh, and then I'm going to supply you with a kind of string of more audio that I've found. Um, just because it was such a big concern in the 1960s and early part of the 1970s. Now, why was overpopulation in particular a concern? Like, what brought the overpopulation uh, concern to the forefront of of, of, of everyone's uh, mind? In 1968, a uh, biology professor from Stanford named Dr. Paul Elrich published a book, small little book, called Population, The Population Bomb. What the Population Bomb did was it uh, kind of stressed the concern that there are going to be too many people uh, uh, using too many resources and creating a negative impact on our environment via pollution. Basically, um, to put it like Paul Elrich did... The basic point is so simple. We have a finite planet with finite resources, and in such a system, you can't have infinite population growth. And that's what you have. That's how you get the population control uh, issue. Now, it was slowly gaining attention and support because, of course, the counterculture movement of the 1960s, and, you know, everybody had to have a cause that they were championing, and pollution, and free spirit, and free love, and, you know, stuff like that, but also more social issues, you know, so... Uh, overpopulation was one that was often championed and because it, uh, of that it gained uh, more attention Dr. Elrich then went on The Tonight Show with, with Johnny Carson it gained even more attention uh, such that even Nixon President Nixon uh, kind of uh, took up the charge and was also trying to get things done about the, pro the problem of overpopulation look at what the year 2000 will be our cities are going to be choked with people they're going to be choked with traffic. They're going to be choked with crime. They're going to be choked with pollution. And they will be impossible places in which to live. There was even times when, uh, you know, when, when with, with that uh, Elrich kind of made suggestions uh, for what we could do about uh, overpopulation, such as responsibility quote unquote responsibility prizes uh, for childless marriages taxing children that is in forcing children to pay taxes but taxing people for having children for the i guess the amount of children they had uh, luxury taxes on things like diapers and cribs and expensive toys even so far as putting stuff in the water supply to make people less fertile not to sterilize them but to make them like less fertile like that's how that's that's how crazy things got. It actually got even crazier because evidently as the awareness of overpopulation spread, people in India seemed to prefer, you know, the kind of higher class kind of preferred to think that people were poor 
that poor people were poor not because of economic issues or something like that, but because there were just too too many people. So they they preferred to think that that there was an easier problem to tackle. And actually, uh, after this issue came out, uh, according to the video I watched in the, in, in the mid nineteen seventies. India actually took this really seriously and began a mass sterilization process. Like some were offered like incentives like housing and food supplies, but evidently very many people were done uh, had were forcibly sterilized. And I, I I am not exaggerating by using the word forcibly, forcibly sterilizing humans in India. Now some people gathered to protest this evidently, uh, and but some police the, the police opened fire on the crowd and evidently they killed like fifty people like it was a huge deal in India, um, and throughout watching this video I found uh, I saw even more reports that overpopulation remains a concern to today like even to today. The the there there are corners of India where the the sterilization stuff continues. Although the national policy has changed. Pressure to meet unofficial sterilization targets remains in many areas of the country and sometimes turns sterilization surgery into a dangerous assembly line. We are told that 83 women were operated upon in a span of just six hours by a single doctor. So it's a continuous thing over in India. Um, uh, and it's a continuous thing today. I don't know how many times I've had a conversation with somebody um, you know, talking about the future and, and and stuff like that, and some people mention that the future of humanity uh, relies on us figuring out interstellar travel in such a way, and and like terraforming and stuff like that, so that we can, you know, eventually we're going to kill our planet. That that uh, things like uh, limited resources, pollution, and overpopulation will eventually drive us off the planet that we call home, and We'll have to seek out and colonize another world entirely and begin anew there. So there are people that today that consider overpopulation maybe not as threatening as Elrich uh, thought it was, but or as dire and uh, forthcoming immediately as Elrich thought it was, but as a problem that we will face eventually and eventually will, will become a cause for concern. Um, and there were several other things that the, the country did um, in, in terms of uh, helping and trying to uh, stave off the problem of overpopulation. So there was, there was a big concern about overpopulation and I know I'm not talking uh, too extensively about it mostly because it was um, I think me personally, I think I believe it, it, it is a problem, not necessarily one that will cause our society as a, as a planet. I don't mean society as an American culture. I just mean society as in the human society. Um, it will eventually cause problems. Uh, I don't know when that is. Um, and I don't know even if it will happen. Maybe for all I know, people will take it seriously and there will be something that we do or we're a little more careful about uh you know maybe people use more contraceptive methods or you know people you know start making smart choices with their with regards to having their children you know regardless of regardless of desire of family size you you know people take into consideration their economic situation and and you know 
limit themselves uh, so that they can provide for their children as opposed to having multiple children and kind of just struggle to keep up with that quote-unquote natural process. Um, so it's it, I think it will become an issue if not addressed, uh, but I think there are more factors to it uh, than just uh, limiting population and popula and having population control methods. I think, uh, you know, we need to figure out how to take care of the people that already are here. Um, there's so many people starving and stuff like that, that, and, and I'm not, you know, you hear people talk about this all the time. Why, you know, why aren't, why aren't we paying more attention to the people who are starving rather than, well, we help everybody. Why isn't there enough for everybody? Um, I think we need to figure out how to take care of the people who are already here uh, in addition to trying to figure out what we're going to do for the future generations that are still yet to come. So there was, there was a lot, there's a lot to address with the concern of population control uh, and overpopulation. And there's a lot more that I could have researched, but it kind of all came down to Dr. Elrich and his, the population bomb publication. Uh, Kind of seemed like he was the focal point for this mass, uh, this uh, this mass concern. He was the, you know, like for for instance, the the Comics Code Authority. You know, this is a good this is a good example. The concern uh, that uh, comics were negatively affecting our youth uh, at the time in the nineteen forties and nineteen fifties was a concern shared by a great many people, but it took. Dr. Frederick Wortham to become kind of the face of the anti-comics sort of crusade. So when you think of anti-comic sentiment, uh, 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 sentimentism uh, uh, in the 1940s and 50s, um, you kind of focus in on Frederick Wortham and kind of put in your focus on that particular man and his involvement in that crusade. So... I think kind of Elrich, Dr. Elrich here, is the same thing. I think a population concern was probably a little bit of a growing concern, but it took someone like Dr. Paul Elrich to to kind of uh, vocalize the concerns in a cohesive document and become the kind of face of it for it to kind of launch into a huge concern. Which timing fits perfectly, you know. This 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 thing came out in the nineteen in nineteen seventy um, and uh, nineteen seventy and uh, the, the tail end of nineteen seventy. So that means Denny O'Neill probably scripted this, uh, the beginning of nineteen seventy, the mid beginning or mid nineteen seventy, and uh, Doctor Paul Elrich, you know, Population Bomb was published in nineteen sixty eight. So this issue is being published at like the pinnacle of this mass mass concern. So definitely, it definitely works out in that regard in terms of timing. Uh, definitely uh, makes sense that of all the social issues addressed in the uh, GLGA series, that overpopulation would be one of them uh, for sure. I mean, it was uh, kind of unavoidable. Uh, so uh, moving on a little bit, uh, just kind of give you the remainder of the relevant audio I think uh, I think I found uh, here in relation to. Um, uh, of uh, population overpopulation, uh, so I'll provide you with that, and then we'll move right into the letters column, which again I will read word by word because these issues are kind of hard to get a hold of for uh, you know uh, a very cheap price. So 
uh, enjoy or listen to this audio that I found that uh, relevant to uh, overpopulation I think you might uh, find interesting. And then we'll be right back with uh, the uh, Green Lantern's mail shoot. Overpopulation so long predicted has stolen upon us. It's getting worse week by week. The U.S. could be busting out at the seams by the end of the century. If we do not, by humane means, limit our numbers, then numbers are going to be limited by more famines and shortages and consequent social conflicts. Net world population is increasing by 23 people every 10 seconds. It's clear that world population growth remains completely out of control. What are you trying to prove? Um... It's about pain in the world. Maybe anybody who's thinking of having a third child ought to go hungry a week. The mode became, don't have kids. There's enough of them in the world. And if your friends have kids, it's fine if they feel uncomfortable about that. We had formed an organization called Zero Population Growth. And then Johnny took me on The Tonight Show. Would you welcome Dr. Paul Ehrlich? You have to get the death rate and birth rate in balance, and there's only two ways to do it. One is to bring the birth rate down, the other is to push the death rate up. I did the show maybe 20 times, and we went from six chapters and 600 members to 600 chapters and 60,000 members. We're starting in now. This is the first step. The Bagleys belong to a growing number of young marrieds who favor ZPG, zero population growth. How many children do you have? Two. I have two children. Okay, the letter column from uh, Green Lantern uh, number 81. Green Lantern's mail shoots. Okay, so first up. Dear Editor, Current, relevant, provocative, dramatic, powerful, and metaphysically significant. Even those supremely descriptive adjectives do not adequately describe the new Green Lantern co-starring Green Arrow. A natural reaction to this currently morbid and unsettled period of time of American life is the yen to escape it by relating to a long-gone virtuous past. And so, after a five-year absentation from comic mag magazines, I began once again to buy Flash, Batman, and Green Lantern. Both Flash and Batman show potential, but Green Lantern's growth and current excellence in story and Neil Adams' art is beyond belief. Your competitors are still churning out soap opera-like trash, which is supposed to pass, which is supposed to pass as representation of reality. Green Lantern exhibits drama and dialogue compared with the likes of Easy Rider and Midnight Cowboy. Issue seventy-six summed up the despair and unreality of our times as no piece of literature I've read this year. Green Arrow is a brilliant and significant, I also hope permanent, addition to the magazine. The characters balance perfectly. Green Arrow, totally aware of the sickness of today's America, hip, alive, angry, human. Green Lantern, hesitant, uncertain, looking back on an old, ordered, and simple universe, slowly coming to the realization that the type of world that, that type of world is dead. Number seventy seven showed the ugliness within America. Even through Green even though Green Lantern is merely a comp comic magazine it shows this reality the recognition of it is the first step toward a cure number 78 expressed the fact that history repeats itself and men of hate and misunderstanding will rise to the surface again and again yet there is the hope and dream that men like green arrow and green lantern will be there to combat them the relationship between oliver queen and the black canary was tastefully portrayed and free of free from corniness the friendship between Hal and Oliver is truly realistic. 
more counterplay, argument, and understand understanding and concern here than any other superhero team to, up to date. Hal's freedom from girls and steady job is a fine development. His longer hair makes him look hip. Green Arrow's new appearance, burns, beard, mustache, make him the heaviest hero alive. What more can I say? Current, relevant, provocative, dramatic, powerful, and metaphysically significant just don't do it justice. Peter Marzano, Cicero, Illinois. Comment from the editor? Leading off this issue's letter column, as if chosen by an editorial by an editorial finger of fate are three communiques that hail from the state of Illinois and letters of hail Green Lantern they are indeed next letter dear editor the perfect comic magazine story we all know is impossible to think of one story containing sustain, uh, sustained action exact interweaving of plot and subplot flawless artwork and dialogue and characterization perfectly complementing the story is to dream I have just read such a story, and I still cannot believe it. In three swift issues, you you have raised Green Lantern Green Arrow from an almost average sci-fi mag to quite possibly the best comic magazine on the market. And in this one issue, number 78, A Kind of Loving, A Way of Death, you have fulfilled possibilities that never have been approached before in the comics field. The dialogue simply lifted me out of my seat. Hearing Green Arrow call Green Lantern Ringslinger and Black Canary Bird Lady... Having him say of a meal of beans that it, quote, reminds me of the way Mama used to cook on her better days, unquote, gives the story a kind of earthly, earthy reality that simply sends it soaring. In the past, dialogue seems to have been treated as secondary to the plot. That is, it was included to let the reader know what was going on, and good dialogue meant that it did not hamper the movement of the story. No longer so with Denny O'Neill's new brand of story. He shows us that whatever words do not propel the action are not worth having. But the most enjoyable part of the story was the new character of Green Arrow. O'Neill has suddenly created from nowhere a brand new character, already perhaps the best in the field. Here is a character of sh strength, of feeling, with, quote, a laugh like the roar of a mountain river and arms like steel cables, unquote, who sees what is going on around him and is not afraid to do something about it. He is so hot-headed that he can belt his own best friend, yet he is at the same time kind and gentle to the woman Black Canary. He is the kind of person who suddenly wakes up and says, Hey, wait a minute, there's something wrong going on around here and it's not me, and sets out to find out what is wrong, and write it if he can, for his brother's less fortunate than he. He is a hero at last that the hero wants to be that the reader wants to be like. A new kind of hero here. One who can live life to the fullest, but knows the line be between enough and too much, between right and wrong. If Green Lantern Green Arrow continues as it has started, I would say that I don't see how it is possible, were I not flattened by what the mag has done already, then I think that within about three issues I will be able to say one word. Wow. Edward Broderick, Arlington Heights, Illinois. No comment from the editor. Dear Editor, Seldom have I read a story which has appealed so vividly to my emotions as A Kind of Loving, A Way of Death. Denny O'Neill has turned Green Lantern into a dramatic character who lives and breathes with the realisticness of the American countryside in which his adventures take place. Denny has also altered the backward set of heroes who are formerly cardboard representations of good into a green arrow and black canary that intrigue the reader and display a real feel 
the real feelings of a confused and loving mankind. The hatred, ruthlessness, and brutal superiority which were represented to were, which were presented to open this story were an essential part of this revealing series of adventures. As Denny wisely does not try to cover up deeply enmeshed prejudices and failures in America. Green Arrow's bitter outrage on page 10 is the main reason I've become a believer in him. When his new uniform came onto the scene, I was extremely skeptical, but his vigor, determination, and zeal to express what he feels and not what he thinks he should feel have impressed me immensely. His disappointment and abandonment after GL's taunt was priceless. No other comic can match this characterization. The final confrontation between GL, GA, and the mob was another masterpiece of hysteria-compounded excitement with that nerve-wracking, terrifying Black Canary decision. After all that praise for O'Neill's master script, you might think I've forgotten about that beautiful Beyond Words art rendered by the incomparable Neil Adams and aided with the flowing inks of Frank Giacoya. Perish the thought. When two guys could take emotion-charged words and depict a very, the very root feeling with such brilliant illustrations as these guys did, nobody could ever overlook their efforts. Mike Oslantz, Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Comment from the editor, and to show we're not Illinois-natured, we'll, we carry you to back to old Virginia in an anti-blast from the, a negative-minded critic. Next letter. Dear Editor, one hardly knows where to begin when criticizing Mr. O'Neill's treatment of Green Lantern these past issues. To say that his writing is unsubtle would be the sublimest of understatements. For instance, the portrayal of Soames' thugs as ex-Nazis and journey to desolation and the depiction of the motorcycle's gang leader as wearing a German helmet in a kind of loving way of death are indescribably trite. But of course, all conservatives must be styled as either Huey Long fascists, redneck cretins, or Bible-pounding bigots. How else could they be made to epitomize the evil GL has been, quote, overlooking for all these years? Surely, Green Lantern deserves a better fate than to be made a tool of an ideological extremist. Just as I would not have William Buckley write Green Lantern, so too do I object to Mr. O'Neill's opinionated, fustian rhetoric. His gall seems to know no bounds. The decade-long work of Broom, Fox, and, and others in establishing Green Lantern at the, the pinnacle of comic magazine perfection has been completely nullified in three short issues by Mr. O'Neill's propagandistic extravaganzas. You will know by now of your reader's collective opinion concerning your recent romp through the dregs of socio-political commentary. Undoubtedly, a certain percentage of their response will, blithe praise, will be blithe praise. Comic magazines have finally become involved with the issues of the day. I can only hope that this faction will be in the minority. There are limits to which a character, to which a company may degrade a comic magazine character. In a desperate bid to boost sales before even the most confirmed aficionado becomes too nauseated to pick up the next issue. Lee Brakeiron, Charlottesville, Virginia. Comment from the editor. Point one. The Blythe Praise faction was well over 90%. Point two. The Green Lantern you favored, prior to number 76 presumably, had turned into a financial loser. Point three. Despite your nausea, we're betting you felt well enough to buy number 70, 79, 80, and 81 just to see what else is new in the world of, in the world's most exciting comic magazine. Next letter. Dear Editor, this writer, O'Neill, is disturbing. He has torn down the conventional barriers of writing. 
He has changed the entire basic formula, which has been pre present in the superhero comics. Batman's costume villains have faded into a temporary limbo. So has it been with Green Lantern these past few issues. O'Neill has accomplished an unprecedented end in comics. He has and is continuing to build within Green Lantern a, de a, defin a definite characterization. He is a human being with a soul now. And even better yet, Denny O'Neill's stories are based upon our own society's basic structure. These are the type of stories I've longed to see. A hero battling to save a society convulsed by both nobilities and atrocities. Stark realism, or the closest one can come to it. Needless to say, Neil Adams' pencils are superb. I already feel that the team of O'Neill Adams has already outshone the still-revered Fox Infantino couple. I have nothing more to say. What could I say anyways? Chris Juricic, Burlingame, California. No comment from the editor. Next letter. Dear Editor, Green Lantern number 78 was as beautiful a statement on prejudice as I have ever seen. Denny's story was powerful and straightforward, and naturally the art was fantastic. The use of Black Canary was brilliant. I certainly hope that she will become a regular in GL. I mean, the team of GLGA and the Black Canary would be just devastating. Naturally, the fight scenes are what sells comics, primarily. The fight scenes in this issue were all well done. My favorite was the sequence where GA and GL cut down the demons. And GA's all-too-human fit of rage on page 10 was out of this world. Kudos all around, guys. I, for one, am glad to see the Green Lantern being used as a vehicle to fight prejudice and other forms of mass stupidity that plague the human race. Sheldon Weehy, Calgary, Canada. No comment from the editor. Dear Editor, GL78 was a smash, as if you didn't know. As usual, the art was superb. Facial expressions were ex excellently depicted, and Black Canary, Black Canary never looked more luscious. Green Arrow was never more formidable. As usual, Denny O'Neill turned into first-rate story, his third in a row for GL. The rest of this letter concerns comics in general. People have snickered at and ridiculed comic magazines and the souls who read them for a long time. I've come up against the type who believes that only infantile people up to 10 years old waste their time with them. However, I feel that the stories in your mags are extremely sophisticated. Dealing with such topics as pollution, corruption, and bigotry, these are stories to hold the attention of readers of all ages. In the 10 years I've read comics, I've learned many historical and scientific facts as well as many new words. My sincerest congratulations and thanks to all DC editors. Gerard, Triano, Elmont, New York. No comment from the editor. And that's the final letter for the letters column, the uh, Green Lantern's mail shoot for uh, Green Lantern, Green Arrow number 81. Again, the uh, loquaciousness, if you will, uh, with which people are writing in uh, furthers the comment of the last letter writer uh, that comics are not just for kids, that they are being read by sophisticated, well-versed uh uh, well, uh, very opinionated individuals, um, including even the negative uh, letter that we got, uh, this issue. Um, you know, some people aren't going to take to the uh, kind of uh, democratic stylings of Denny O'Neill, you know? So, or the more liberal, whatever you, whatever you want to call it. Um, but, you know, the editor said 90% of the letters they got. Now, whether that's true or not, I tend to believe Julie Schwartz, but you never know. 
I'd prefer to believe it's true. 90% of the letters received are, uh, well over 90%, actually, are blithe praise <laughs> for Green Lantern, Green Arrow. So, um, I don't know. I just think that, uh, it's, it's really, uh, you know, there, there are concerns I have sometimes when it comes to very popular comic series that maybe the comic series has been hyped as a standout in, uh, the comic series or the comic individual comic issue have been hyped for so long in the comics industry and among comic fans is like this uh, pinnacle, uh, pinnacle point uh, achievement for the comics industry for writing or art or whatever. That I think it's nice to read these these uh, letters because we're seeing real time what people have been saying for years about the Green Lantern Green Arrow series. So it's nice to know that. What you hear about the Green Lantern, Green Arrow series, about its importance, about its social, uh, socio and political uh, uh, importance, um, not only at the times, but just for comics in general and what it did to the comic industry, was, uh, was well-founded. Um, in terms of the Comics Code Authority, uh, what did this particular issue... Um, address uh i'm kind of leaning towards not doing the the whole uh if you bend the rules this can apply thing so i'm trying a new thing where i don't uh reference the comics code unless it's an out and out you know in your face kind of a thing um uh in terms of a violation of the comics code I don't see any out-and-out out violation here, and anything I brought up would be sort of... Um, I could have brought up two or three things, but they would be redundant. And in other words, they'd be about the... Three things about the exact same moment, and it's they're, they're all sort of, if you stretch the rules, it applies kind of a thing. Um, we are coming to, very shortly, the uh, reintroduction of the Comics Code. Or the recreation of the Comics Code. Um, so... Uh, I think that we're at the point where the comics code is bending and starting to break uh, historically at this point in time. So I think they're being a little less stringent on certain things. And then, of course, once we get to uh, to 85 and uh, the drug use and, of course, Marvel's take on drug use with uh, Harry Osborn, you know, that's when the, the real break and change happens. But we're slowly approaching that. Now, so again, I, uh, unless it's a sort of out-and-out out representation uh, going against the Comics Code, I'm kind of uh, setting it aside for now. Um, I did get one bit of feedback, so uh, thank you, as always, to my uh, constant commenter on the uh, Green Lantern, Green Arrow podcast, Andy Macon, and he writes, Hi, Chad. Thanks once again for a thoughtful review of GLGA, especially your following comments about state-sponsored environmental pollution. You asked if there were any comments from listeners on the topic. I would like to add some of my own thoughts for what they are worth. The late 1960s and early 1970s were a time of great social change. Amongst this was a growing awareness about man's influence on the environment. As an example, there was a very late, tragically so, realization about the lasting effects of nuclear bomb testing. 
A big factor was also of the book by Rachel Carson, Silent Spring, published in the early 1960s, primarily about the lasting and damaging effects of the use of pesticides such as DDT in control of insects, mosquitoes in malaria zones, for instance. There were strong arguments in favor of its use as well as against. In, in favor was its benefits in reducing serious disease. But this was outweighed, eventually, by the realization that it does not disappear from the environment, and that there were high levels being detected even in Arctic wildlife. Despite that, its primary use was in warmer climates. It was only banned in the U.S. in 1972, ten years after the book. But I would guess that O'Neill and Adams were thinking about this kind of issue when they wrote GLGA number 80. There are countless other examples. I suppose that the only defense of the polluters is that they may have believed that, for instance, sending a ship to the bottom of the sea would be a very localized problem, and that in a giant ocean, well, what's the worst that could happen? I imagine in reality, though, that some of the guilty parties had a pretty good idea of the potential damage but didn't care. Why else would European countries, the UK and France, test their bombs on the, in the Pacific? I could go on, but I think that my conclusion is that environmental issues were high on the public agenda at the time of this comic, and that the idea was very well handled in this book. Thanks for another great episode. Cheers, Andy Macon. P.S. Keep reading the letter columns. Well, Andy, you're the only one who told me to keep reading the letter columns, and uh, I'm going to keep reading them. Uh, so, uh... Also got a comment from Jesse um, uh, uh, previously in one of our other emails that we read on the main Lantern Cast show. Uh, it was just a one-sentence comment, but I'll just go ahead and read it for you guys, um, just because it does relate to Green Lantern, Green Arrow. And I, you know, other than Andy, I don't get a whole lot of feedback, so I definitely want to uh, make a point to uh, read the relevant comments as they come in, even if they're just a sentence. So Jesse says the recent GLGA episode was interesting as always. I never realized how big an impact the book had on the comics business back in the 1970s, and it's interesting learning about that time. And that's Jesse Stewart. Thanks, Jesse. I really appreciate that comment. It's nice to know that people are listening to the GLGA episodes and, and actually enjoying them, getting some uh, some interesting historical perspective and stuff like that out of them. Uh, but uh, those two bits of comments, that wraps up our feedback, and as such, it wraps up our episode. So, uh, thanks guys for listening. If you want to contact us, it's lanterncast at gmail.com. You can also contact us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram and use the hashtag GLCast to find us on all three. We are, uh, on iTunes and Stitcher. And if you listen to us there, uh, please leave us a positive review as that helps, uh, increase the visibility of our show. Uh, uh, last but not least, we got a, a voicemail, uh, and that is 708lantern. 708 Lantern, uh, give us a call and let us know what you think. Uh, and again, of course, guys, send in emails, lanterncast at gmail.com, and you can go to our website, lanterncast.com, for lots of, lots more information and details. But again, uh, lanterncast at gmail.com, especially for the GLGA show. I love hearing back from you guys. Uh, Jesse, send in, uh, as, as many comments as you want. Andy, keep on sending them in. And anybody else who was also listening and has some comments about the GLGA series or this uh, particular spinoff and, uh, at all, just definitely send in those, those comments. We'd, I'd love to read them. Um, Seemingly, as I record this and look at the timestamp, it seems like it might be a little bit of a shorter episode, but who knows after editing. So, uh, hope you guys enjoyed it regardless. Uh, if you'd like me to continue, I will obviously continue reading the, uh, the letters pages in these comics. If you'd like me to continue, uh, doing the, uh, 
impact on the comics code, like what this comic uh, went up against in the comics code, um, even if it involves stretching the definition uh, of the rule in the comics code, let me know. I feel like an out-and-out -out, uh, butting of heads against the comics code is definitely worthy of bringing up, but I don't know if uh, continually stretching the definition is of any interest to you guys. So definitely write in and let me know if you want me to keep doing that. And that is LandryCast at gmail.com. So uh, I will talk to you guys later, and uh, see you next time. Bye. and such to the point of yeah so many ifs and things and whatnots that we're in a super duper jam how many cars stereos fancy bars costly curios you know of course we've taught our computers to talk first national city blank your balance to date suddenly shrank sorry we're sorry okay we've had our fun but how do we computerize 500 million hungry bellies? Your data is incorrect. How many homeless children, orphans? Aha, but nobody counts them. We do not have data. We do not have data. But somebody does act, does help compassionately. All around the world, the concerned representatives of the three great American faiths, Catholic, Protestant, and Jewish, act to rebuild shattered lives, regardless of race, faith, or color. Support the Protestant One Great Hour of Sharing, the United Jewish Appeal, and the American Catholic Overseas Aid Fund.